Epiphany Church in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Welcome to Epiphany's Podcast, a ministry of Epiphany Anglican Fellowship in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Our church exists to help people discover and rediscover the love of God in the Christian gospel. For more information about our church, you can visit epiphanyligonier.org. I have been baby Tom's father now for 11 wonderfully tiresome months. Um, He'll be turning one on November 30th. And I am amazed at how much he looks like his maternal grandfather. He looks just like Beth's dad. He's got the same smile. He's got the same nose. He even has hair that looks like Grandpa Joe, looks like Pap. And some of you have said very kind things to me, like, Brian, he has your eyes. But when we took out a couple of uh, family pictures of when Beth and her dad were younger, I mean, there's just no comparison. He may have been named after my dad, Thomas Bryan Gerald III, but he is the spitting image of Beth's dad, Joseph Anthony Emmett. He's got one grandpa's looks and the other grandpa's name. We inherit so much of our life and values and looks from our parents and our grandparents. There's no denying it. Our parents teach us to speak and ride bikes and write thank you cards. We share their verbal tics, and oftentimes we share their deeply held values and beliefs. But what's less often discussed is how we also inherit the foils and the uh, faults of our parents, too. Our parents may teach us good manners and moral behavior, but they also pass along the negative ways we interact with the world, too. A clergy friend of mine shared a very embarrassing story from his childhood that's relevant to this idea. Growing up, he was part of a household um, that was comfortable using racial slurs and curse words within the confines of their four walls. And they knew that when they were outside to keep it on the lockdown, but, you know, it's hard to communicate that to their child. And so when this boy got a little older and went out in public, he used one of those words and was very confused about the backlash. What do you mean that's a bad word, he said. My parents use that word all the time. His parents had unintentionally passed along to him a comfort with disagreeable language. And this is not uncommon, right? Maybe your parents uh, grew up in a rough neighborhood. Um, And when they became parents, they passed along to you the idea that the world was a dangerous place and you don't go outside and you don't play in the yard and that people are not to be trusted. Or maybe when you had a parent, they were at one point deeply wounded by a previous romantic partner, and so you learned growing up that the opposite sex was a source of danger. You may have thought in your heart that women cannot be trusted or that all men are animals. It's not always the deep emotional trauma that gets passed along from generation to generation either. Maybe you learned from your father that work was very important. It was a top value. And so, you know, your father worked a lot when he was younger. And so when you had kids, you had that same relationship with work. You learned that the father um, goes out to work. And so if that was your world when you grew up and if you became a father or a mother, you learned how important work was. 
Or maybe you learned from the mother the importance of presentation and good dress. And you watched her, as the old saying goes, you know, put on lipstick just to go check the mailbox. And so you didn't leave the house. You don't leave the house to this day without putting on your face and making yourself presentable to the world. In our reading from Genesis today, I want to lean into this idea of family patterns and practices that are passed on from generation to generation. We said goodbye to our friend Abraham uh, in the uh, last two weeks or so. The baton has been passed from Abraham to his son. He, Isaac, is our new leading man today. And last week, my friend and colleague Lauren Scharf was here, and she explained how Isaac it was now the inheritor of God's promises, that God wants the same relationship with Isaac that he had with Abraham. And she explained that when famine hit the land of Canaan, Isaac was thinking, maybe I should head south to Egypt until the famine has passed. South in Egypt, it's a different climate system. They've got the Nile River, so they have a little bit more uh, abundant crop growth. And Isaac was thinking, well, maybe I should head south to Egypt, spend some time down there. And then God intervenes in that situation and says, listen, if you can stay in this region, stay in this region, I'm going to be to you like I was to your father. God says, don't go to Egypt. Trust me, I will provide the food for you. I will get you through this famine. And Isaac says, okay, I'll stay. And so instead of going south to Egypt, he stays in the general area, and he settles in a region called Gerar. That was last week's sermon, a familiar story about famine and travels. This week's passage from Genesis sounds very familiar, too. Indeed, while Whoopi Goldberg Rumor has it she has been strongly pounding the pavement in a season of uh, franchise reboots to get someone to green light the script for Sister Act 3. Um, There is no Sister Act 3 in Hollywood, but this is the third Sister Act in the book of Genesis. Isaac enters the land of Gerar. He fears for his life. He believes that the powerful king and the powerful people of that region will see um, not only his attractive wife, but also his great wealth that he has inherited from his father. And they will say, why not kill Isaac, marry his wife, and take all of his things? So what does he do? When everyone asks, hey, tell me about your wife, he responds, no, she is my sister. This is the third time, thankfully the last time, (laughs) that a husband will call his wife a sister in the book of Genesis. Remember the first time this happened? Abraham goes to Egypt. He pulls Sister Act 1. But God intervenes, and he snitches to Pharaoh about Abraham's plan. And so Pharaoh not only gives Abraham his wife back, but he kicks him out of the country. Some 25 years later, Abraham and Sarah pull the same stunt again. And this time they do it in a very familiar land, the land of Gerar, the same place that Isaac is now. And they do it with a king who keeps a familiar name, a king named Abimelech, the same king as Isaac's king. In fact, father king, that's the translation of the word Abimelech, something like the royal father. And so uh, Abimelech, you know, we have like Charles I, Charles II, Charles, it's like Abimelech II, Abimelech II. It was a very common name for a king. So once again, 
God intervenes in the second sister act, the second time Abraham goes to Gerar. And he says, uh, snitches through dreams to the king and says to the king, do not do anything to Sarah. So Abimelech comes to Abraham, right? This is sister act two and says, what are you doing? Trying to pass off your wife as your sister. Not cool, man. But they end up developing a relationship and parting ways as friends. As odd as that goes. So Abraham tries to pull off the sister act twice. Now his son Isaac tries to pull the con in his own marriage for the same reasons. Fear for his life. You know the old saying, I don't have to tell you, the apple never falls far from the tree. When Isaac meditated on the threat to his life that this presumably lawless pagan region represented, he was willing to sacrifice his marriage to save his own skin. It's a defect of character he seems to have inherited from his father. But in this third version of Sister Act, in today's reading that we see, Isaac's not very good at the deception. It just so happens, it's a coincidence, that the very patriarchal, structured, rigid society where men and women did not fraternize unless they were husband and wife, in that society, uh, King Abimelech is walking by the window in his royal palace one day, looks out the window, and sees Isaac and Rebekah hanging out and laughing together. That is not what people do unless they are married. And so Abimelech puts two and two together, and he calls Isaac in for a meeting, and, the, and Abimelech says, what are you doing? Why are you lying to me? And they talk about it, they work through the details, Abimelech uh, actually acknowledges Isaac's fear. He recognizes that, you know, you may actually have a point that that could happen to you. But then Isaac also apologizes and recognizes his deception, you know, sorry for lying. And they walk away with a, a decree from the king that if anything happens to Abraham, uh, the king personally will get involved. If anything happens to Abraham, oh, excuse me, huh, Isaac and Rebekah, the king will personally get involved to deal with it. Sister Act 3, in our reading today, is very different from the first two, primarily because the plot is stopped before it comes to fruition. Rebecca could very well have ended up in Abimelech's harem or married off to another man, but the scheme never develops. Abimelech just happens to see the duo through the window with their guard down. I think it's not reading too far between the lines to say that looking at all of these, um, these three sister act stories, that this coincidence of looking out the window that Abimelech does has the fingerprints of God on it. God breaks up sister act one, but with a dream to Pharaoh. God breaks up sister act two with a dream to Abimelech. And God breaks up sister act three before the operation is fully executed by orchestrating Abimelech's providentially timed view out of his window. Who knows how Isaac learned this particular scheme from his father? Maybe he heard it from one of his father's servants. Maybe he heard it from his father himself, regaling of stories of the old days. Maybe Isaac's brain chemistry is so similar to that of his father's brain chemistry that he came up with the idea on his own because of some sort of mystical father-son hereditary connection. Who knows? But what is certain is this. The sins of the parent are mimicked and replicated by the sins of 
the child. Theologians have a word for this concept, by the way, this idea that the sort of ungodly attitudes and behaviors of one person seem to go through and pass along from generation to generation. They call it generational sin. It's not a creative name, but it gets the point across. The idea is that the consequences and effects of one parent's sin can linger on with their children and grandchildren for generations to come. You see this, for example, in the criminal justice system. In the 1940s, the criminologists started to to track the relationship between incarceration and families. And studies have shown this, that there's this massive amount of crime, something like 50% in some studies, uh, 50% of all crime, nearly half, are committed by the same 6% of families. Such a wild number that if you go to the 6% of families with the focus on rehabilitation and help, that could cut the crime rate in half. Young men in these families, they seem to grow up, in particular young men, they grow up to imitate the patterns of their fathers who were regularly incarcerated. So that criminal behavior thrived in family settings. This is generational sin. Another example of things getting passed from generation to generation is something like a, like a divorce or violence in the family. When I do premarital counseling, I share a handful of predictors about divorce in a marriage. Um, age is one of them, for example. Uh, young people who marry uh, under the age of 22, they're really at a higher risk of divorce than others. Not finishing high school is another predictor. Um, It's a predictor of marital divorce in the long run. But one of the predictors of divorce in a marriage is whether or not the parents of the bride and groom-to-be have uh, remained married in their own right. And so if a bride's parents or a groom's parents are divorced, the odds of the couple one day getting uh, divorced go up statistically significantly. And so psychologists will share that the trauma of divorce on children can follow them as well for a long time and impact Uh, the marriages they have in the future. And so don't get me wrong, sometimes divorces are necessary in this messy world of ours. But it's also true that trauma of divorce and the events that lead up to it can last for generations. If you think long enough, you can see how this sort of thing manifests itself in other families. And if you're honest with yourself, you can think of a thing or two you inherited from your own family background. I wasn't going to say this, but I'll share this. Um, when, when I'm a big guy. I'm going off script. I'm a big guy. Um, I have trouble with eating a lot of uh, junk food. And I looked back and realized that when I was a child, every time I was sick and stayed home from school, um, somebody in the family brought me fast food for lunch. And so I would be excited. I get to stay home from school because I felt bad. But I said, you know, at least I got McDonald's for lunch today. And what I learned from that pattern was that every time I felt bad, Every time I I had something wrong with me, I said, you know what I should do? I should look into fast food. It helped me when I was a kid. Maybe it will help now. It's something that I learned from my family. Of course, I have my own culpability. I'm not blaming them. But this idea that things get passed down from generation to generation, it impacts your pastor too. Side note over. (laughs) But today in our reading, we can see how God pulls the plug on this intergenerational mess. And if you have an intergenerational mess in your life, I think there's something in our reading for you. Earlier this week, I read an interview with the director, Ron Howard, about his upcoming adaptation for the book Hillbilly Elegy. 
That's that 2016 bestseller book by J.D. Vance. And what it does is it's chronicling, the book chronicles his struggles about growing up in the context of sort of Rust Belt America and uh, rural Appalachian poverty. And the movie is this loose biography of J.D. Vance's life. So the book was about um, his growing up, and now there's a, there's a sort of biography being, uh, bio, bio, biography movie, there I said it, being made about J.D. Vance's life. And Ron Howard's directing it. And um, it talks, the movie talks about how he struggled to navigate generations of sin in his own family, about how his uh, grandparents, uh, they drank too much and they were abusive. His mother was mentally unstable because of that and was using drugs regularly. But J.D. himself, he went on to college at Ohio State University and afterwards went on to graduate from Yale Law School. The question asks itself, how does a kid from rural Appalachian poverty and Rust Belt roots and a family history of addiction and abuse get a high-powered law degree from Yale? How did he break the cycle of generational sin? How does this kind of thing happen? Ron Howard said this about his film in the interview. It's really a rescue and survival story. It's not exactly about self-actualization, which J.D. is very open about. Of course, he had to have strength ultimately to make decisions and had to have the ability to pull himself out of some patterns within his family and culture, which could have entrapped him, but he didn't do it alone. And the interviewer responds, this is not an up-from-the-bootstrap story of that rescue element you mentioned, because of that rescue element you mentioned, Ron. It's kind of like he was yanked up by his mamma and sustained by others. It was an incredibly true-to-life portrayal about how lives really changed. I'll say that again. It was an incredibly true-to-life story about how lives really are changed. It's not that there's a huge number of kids who have this incredible ability to withstand all of these headwinds. Someone's got to reach in and yank them out. Someone's got to reach in and yank them out. In our reading today, friends, the God of Isaac is a God who reaches in and yanks Isaac out. He puts Isaac out of his family. He pulls Isaac out of his family dysfunction and gives him safety and security. He ends this silly cycle of the sister act. It does not happen again. And at the end of our reading, after Isaac has so much trouble finding and digging wells, God appears to Isaac and says this, Do not be afraid, for I will be with you. And so for those of you this morning who are dealing with tough family issues, who are wondering if the cycles of dysfunction will end, I'm here to tell you that your God is the God who reaches in and yanks you out. Sometimes I'm surprised, in fact, by a lot of the evangelical American emphasis on the family. Um, family's very important. Family value's important. I get that. But when it comes to Jesus' ministry in the New Testament, he says things about the family that are not just surprising, but also shocking and offensive to the people around him. Jesus says, I have come to divide families, mothers and sons, fathers and daughters, all of it. He says, don't bury your fathers. Just follow me. He says, Oh, my mother's calling. I'll talk about her. I'll talk to her later, because you are my brothers and my sisters and my family. Your real family, says Jesus, is spiritual and heavenly. Friends, in the cosmic realities of the world, God is your father. Christ is your brother. We are all children. 
And when Jesus' death and resurrection rocked the city of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, God reached down from heaven and yanked you out of a way of defeat and entrapment and generational sin, washed you with the blood of the Lamb, and placed you in his kingdom forever. And instead of dealing with intergenerational sin passed along by generations of sinners, antique and ancient, you now have a connection with a new intergenerational power, an intergenerational holiness, the lessons and the history of God's people past, the work of the Holy Spirit, and all of those things now become the dominant influence for you, for better instead of worse. And so, for all of you with strained family relationships, absent siblings, overbearing mothers, distant fathers, crude uncles, judgmental grandparents, in Jesus Christ, We are more than the sins of our fathers. We are more than the sins of our fathers. We are no longer bound by intergenerational sin, but we are freed and forgiven from them, just like every other sin on the block. And so while now on earth, we'll stay focused, we will say that we look like our parents. We will look like our maternal grandfathers, and we will say they have their father's eyes. But in the world to come, what will be most important is that they will say, you have your heavenly Father's heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Epiphany Church in Ligonier, Pennsylvania.